Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Compound and Friends. What a difference one benign CPI report can make. Just an explosive rally on Wall Street. Uh, we had we got a CPI print that basically said, absent shelter, there is no inflation uh, really anywhere worth speaking of. I know shelter is a really big component, but even that is headed in the right direction. And energy prices fell substantially, and we just got like a Goldilocks inflation report from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and stocks went wild, specifically anything that has a dividend, anything that's been beaten down because of concerns about how high interest rates would go. Small caps went crazy. It's just been a hell of a day. We're going to talk about it with uh, Michael Batnick in an all-new What Are Your Thoughts segment. But before we go there, we spoke with Rob Copeland this week as well. Rob is a Wall Street Journal reporter who's been covering hedge funds, specifically Bridgewater. And we talked to him about his new book, which just came out called The Fund. And The Fund is a wild uh, collection of stories from inside the world's most successful hedge fund, uh, largest hedge fund, however you want to phrase it. Uh, Ray Dalio, the founder, did not want this book to come out. I have nothing but respect and, and admiration for Ray. I don't really know how many of these stories are true. The book seemed to be very heavily sourced, and Rob is a serious reporter. He claims to have spoken with hundreds of people to put this thing together. And it really, you know, it's it's a it's it's a document. <laughs> Uh, there are a lot of stories in here that you haven't heard before. And there's a lot of stuff in here about culture and when building a culture in a very specific way around the whims of a of a founder can go wrong. And I really think the book is worth exploring and reading and, of course, forming your own uh, judgment uh, as a result. But uh, really well done. And uh, the discussion that we had with Rob was, was interesting. So you'll hear that. You'll hear what are your thoughts. You'll have fun. You'll do the subscribe and the liking and all the things. And we really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. I'll send you there right now. Welcome to The Compound and Friends. All opinions expressed by Josh Brown, Michael Batnick, and their castmates are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Compound. I'm here with Michael Batnick, and we've got a special guest today. His name is Rob Copeland, and he is the author of what I would assume will be the biggest selling book on finance, at least of this fall and winter. Everyone's talking about it. It's called The Fund. Thank you, Michael. And it is the story of Ray Dalio, founder of Bridgewater, and the Bridgewater Fund, which the book is called The Fund. And I think Bridgewater, at one point, maybe still, was the largest hedge fund in the world. Do I have that right? They're they're still calling themselves that. Yep. Okay. Um, by AUM, are they or are they uh, close or they still are? They're they're close. It depends. Some of their products, we could argue okay. about whether it's a hedge fund or not. Okay. All right. Uh, Michael and I read the book, and there's a lot of wild, uh, crazy stuff in here, and I think a lot of people expected there to be. It's not crazy in the sense that like 
it's illegal or it's completely unexpected action. It's really more about how people within the company seem to interact with each other and some of the stranger cultural things that had been rumored about or, you know, uh, blogged about online. But this is really the first time that somebody has extensively spoken with, I think you said dozens or hundreds of people who have been at the firm. Um, so this is really now going to supplant all of the other writings about Bridgewater and I think effectively become like the inside story, uh, the de facto in insider story. Do you see it that way? Was that what you set out to uh, to do when you started writing? Definitely. First of all, and I, I appreciate the compliments. The um, And I hope it's the biggest selling uh, finance book of the fall, the winter, the spring um, of the decade. Let's just keep going. Um, the I would say what I really wanted to do was to show people that this version of Ray Dalio, that he spent so much money uh, promoting and that so many people have just taken hook, line and sinker is is really not the complete version of, of Ray. And if you talk to really anyone around Ray, current or former at Bridgewater, they really never believed that that version of, of Ray. And um, to me, in a way, it made my life easier because he's made himself so famous and the, the truth is so, so different from what he's made it out to be. Why was this so important? Why was it, other than the commercial uh, benefits of having a best-selling book, why was this so important for you to show the other aspect of him that gets left out of, you know, the literature and and the the celebrity. Like, what? Why did? Why was this something that you wanted to personally pursue and spend this much time on? Well, to be honest, it's a little scary to me how much we, and not just with Ray, but with a lot of really successful business people now, how much they're selling. Not just that they're good at making money, but they're good at improving our lives. And Ray Dalio and the principles are all about how you should ignore your your instincts and you should really become a, a different person and you should listen to him just because he's rich. And that to me is something that we should really uh, probe deeply, as Ray would say. And th the other thing I would say is, you know, I've been thinking, I've been reporting around Bridgewater for close to 10 years. When I started, he might have been someone that you and I knew, but it wasn't necessarily someone who was world famous. And then he writes this book, Principles, and then he gets called, he gets all these titles, the Steve Jobs of investing, all these things. He just became more and more famous. And uh, I really felt like an obligation to tell people what, what he's really like behind closed doors. I remember coming across Ray Dalio in a book that I read in 2016 by Adam Grant, the professor at uh, University of Pennsylvania called Originals. And I remember being so impressed with, with that snippet of Ray Dalio about his radical transparency and him urging his employees to call everyone out and seek truth, including Ray Dalio himself. But after reading the book, it, it, it almost feels like, or not almost, it does feel very much like there was this radical transparency, but only of sycophants. Like anybody who disagreed with Ray Dalio, raise your hand. And if you raise your hand, and now that you would raise your hand in public, you were gone. If you disagreed with him, uh, you left. And so it was just left with however many employees that were either either drank the Kool-Aid or were afraid uh, to not drink the Kool-Aid for fear of whatever whatever may come, which was often tears and much worse. Well, not even if you raised your hand, by the way. There's a person in the book who who is told by his colleagues that they just feel like he hasn't bought in. It has not even anything he's done. It's just he's now, it's like the energy coming off him. But I, I love that you brought up Adam Grant because 
to me, Adam Grant and sort of this cohort of, of people who have just bought the Ray Dalio story and, you know, they, they write about him and then they, they get on his payroll. Adam Grant is literally being paid by Ray Dalio to, uh, to quote unquote, develop his principles tools. Um, so I'll, I'll say about Adam, I, I reached out to him for the book. He, he told me he was too busy to talk, which is his right. And then I heard many months later from one of Dalio's attorneys that, Ray da- that Adam Grant had been telling them all sorts of things about me. And, and I just said, this guy didn't even talk to me. This guy is, what are you talking about, a Wharton researcher? He's literally on the payroll. He's literally coordinating the attacks on me. Rob, uh, I know that you had to fight through a lot of uh, a lot of uh, legal, potential legal issues and a lot of pressure. You know, obviously, uh, Ray didn't want the book to come out. And Ray is wealthy and powerful and connected. And uh, I know he fought tooth and nail. He didn't speak with you. Uh, he didn't want to speak with you for the book because based on your reporting for the Wall Street Journal, he had a pretty good idea of the types of things that you were going to uncover and the what I guess what he would have assumed would be the direction, let's say, that you were going to take the book. Do you think that the book would have been different had he said to you, you know what? I wish you weren't doing this. There were a lot of sleeping dogs that I would rather let lie but I get it. You're going to do it anyway. I want to have a voice in this book. Do you think the book would have been materially different had he taken that tack? Um, or do you think it pretty much would have come out the same, but maybe you would have gotten some some reaction quotes in each of the chapters? Well, he did say he would be interviewed for the book, um, but he had a condition, which is that I had to print his interview uh, unedited in the book. And I, I responded to him and I said, Ray, I don't remember that interview with me being printed unedited in, in your book. So that, that sort of uh, ended that one right there. The, would it be different? I'm not so certain it, it would, because this is really the story of Ray Dalio through everyone else's eyes. I think we've heard Ray Dalio's version of the story over and over again. Sure. And I, I, I would have loved more information. I would have loved some cooperation from Bridgewater. But what I would have really loved is just the unedited recordings of so many of these things that that happened at Bridgewater because they did record almost everything at the firm. I'm not sure I want or need Ray Dalio's memory of them years later. Let's just see what it was like. And I think that would have been an improved book. Honestly, more information is better. Rob, one of your sources said to you, the great thing about Bridgewater stories is I never have to exaggerate a single thing for it to be totally insane. I could only imagine some of the stuff that was left on the cutting room floor that didn't make the book. Can you give us something that might not have made the book or maybe something that's in the book? What was, what was your favorite thing that you're like, this is just either so petty or so, so out there. I, I really oh, can't I believe. Guess? It's got to be the piss case. There that's is got, a- the piss case is crazy to me, but I don't know. What, what, By the what's way, yours? that quote that what the person said to me, if I can just paint a picture for you, he told me that while having a lovely lunch on Greenwich Avenue. Uh, I was just like, this is, we are, we are the worst people ever. Uh, like it was like, we're ordering $8 Arnold Palmer's. Um, the, uh, the great thing about Bridgewater stories is there, they are always insane and they're true. The piss case has another element that several people told me that I just couldn't get comfortable (laughs) with. So I'd like to just point out that it may not be that what I'm going to say may not be true. I, um, which is that someone told me that they actually sent out 
the urine or the liquid that was found under the urinal for testing. For DNA? Exactly. Um, yeah, I believe oh it. My God. I believe it because that totally <laughs> makes sense. Um, but I couldn't quite get there on that. And um, there was enough crazy stuff. The, the other thing that I, I really left out was just how many interpersonal relationships there are at, at Bridgewater, just how many incidences of people really just going all in and uh, you know, cheating on their spouses and marrying someone at Bridgewater and just making their whole life about Bridgewater. And the reason I left that out was I tried not to put things in that, um, that frankly might be true at a lot of financial firms. You know, people meet their spouses at the office. So many people told me stories like, oh, this person destroyed their life and then they just made new Bridgewater babies. But I mean, maybe that's the sequel. Well, there are people that would sign up for this, even if they read the book, because one of the things that you talk about, they have secretaries making $200,000. They have people working in security and valet parkers and people who are making more money doing that at Bridgewater than they would from doing that job pretty much anywhere else. And that's not even to speak of the traders, the portfolio managers, most of whom are making seven figures a year, some of whom are making eight figures a year. I think that it, it would be fair to say, despite all these crazy stories and anecdotes and some of the examples of people running from rooms crying, even if you accept that all of those things happened and are true, there's still a lot of people that still work there, have never left, could very easily get a job somewhere else. They choose to stay and they're willing to tolerate that aspect of the founder and the firm for the financial rewards or they might actually appreciate being part of this very inward looking, I don't want to say the word cult, um, but they might appreciate being part of this lifestyle where they work with this intensity and then they socialize. Like how do, how do you how do you wrap your head around that concept? Like there are people that actually like this and aren't leaving. Well, I would say, as you guys know, asset management is a great business to be in if you're the asset manager. So there's a ton of there's there's a ton of money. You're right. People ask me all the time, well, why didn't why don't people just leave? And right. they're getting, like you said, they're getting paid a ton of money. Um, it's also the what Ray is selling the employees on and the world on is the promise of self-improvement. He's telling you to change your value system. He's telling you your instinct is is wrong. And I agree with you. I intentionally don't use the word cult in the book, except in quoting other people talking about it. Right. Um, but that's a big appeal. And it's tough to leave when you're what you're leaving is the opportunity to do nothing short of, according to Ray, improve your life for the better. Um, and so yeah, people have work. financially improved their lives for the better. You cite examples of people who joined the firm having worked at law firms, telecom companies, government agencies, they financially improved their life almost overnight by taking the job. But then oh, there's like, yeah. So, all right. But so that, and then there's, but then there's like the, the consequence of that is they're involved in this system of constantly being rated by others slash rating others and mm -hmm. inform, informing on people who seem to be going against the founder's principles and so like, it's a, it's a trade-off, but you know, I just, I, th I thought it was interesting that 
There are people who can't take it and don't want to. And then there are people who go very far and stay and they're fine with that. And, and there are people who are, who are able to go home at the end of the workday. And, you know, yeah. Jim Comey getting paid $7 million a year 10 years ago there and say, well, this is a really well-paying job. Um, Ro- Sorry, finish your thought. No, please. So you, you spoke with obviously hundreds of former Bridgewater employees and I'm guessing some current Bridgewater employees. Th- there wasn't much in the book in the way of, of how clients felt. And I think your book said that most recently they managed $130 billion in client assets. So surely the clients must at least be uh, happy enough to the tune of $130 billion in, in the various vehicles that they have. How do you think, how do you think some of the clients feel um, about the, on, the, the inner goings at Bridgewater and maybe having read your book, how do you think they would react to it? I'm sure this is, you know, what you wrote is really the culmination of a lot of coverage. This is not necessarily shocking or breaking news, but how do you think the clients feel in general? Well, there has been a lot of client turnover. They, they have lost money and they have replaced it with others. And if I can give Ray, uh, honestly, not being sarcastic, if I can give Ray credit for something, he is truly a marketing genius. And there's no other hedge fund I know that could have the really insipid investment performance they've had for the last 13, 14 years and continue to attract all, all of this money. Um, I did talk to a lot of clients. You're right that the book isn't necessarily a client-focused book. Ray and Bridgewater have a wonderful pitch, and that is, it's a heads-I-win, tails-you-lose. When they make you money, they say, we are, you know, we're going against the grain, et cetera, et cetera. And when they don't, they say, well, you don't even want us to be, you know, swinging for home runs every every year. And that's a that's a killer argument. He's not the only person on Wall Street to make that argument, but he might be the most successful. Um, well, so, some of the strategies, though, are positioned to zig when the market zags hmm. um, because clients have plenty of options if they want the upside of the market. They can certainly buy the index. They can buy uh, long, short people who are leveraged and and picking the best stock. Like, There's a lot of different ways. I think from the beginning, uh, especially like all weather, they kind of, they kind of um, position as – we're, we're, we're trying to survive in every type of market environment, not necessarily race a multi-year bull market. And that pitch resonates with uh, pension funds and institutions who already have the other bases covered. Like, isn't it, is it, isn't it like, <clears throat> I guess, worth mentioning, like, if that's what they set out to do, there are a lot of market environments where they succeeded to do it. 2008, sure. 2009 being like a, a pretty good example. Just 2008. Um, but okay. the, but uh, yeah, sorry, not to, uh, uh, unfortunately yeah. you're talking to someone who has in his brain every, no, every year of pure alpha up there. But yeah. Rob, Rob, to that, to that point, the book was so heavy on what happens at Bridgewater, but very light on specific returns, even though you discussed how they did at various points in time, why didn't you talk more about the performance? Because as a reader, I was sort of left wondering like, you know, they had good times, they had bad times, but overall, I mean, there were, there were our reports that they made more money for their clients on an absolute dollars basis than any other hedge fund ever. Now, obviously it's a function of their size, but why didn't you get into the specific, uh, the specific numbers? I'm curious. Well, that's a, that's a fair question, by the way. And you're right. They have made more by some metrics, uh, than any other hedge fund. I think if you, uh, 
I actually asked them to do this and they didn't. I'd love for them to um, dollar weight their returns. Let me know how the returns were. Um, well, that's not know, their right. fault. We know how that goes. <laughs> the, fair enough. Fair enough. But what Ray has become so famous for, honestly, to me, is more than just investing. Um, like I'm thrilled to talk to you guys about the investing for as long as as long as you'd like. But he's really when he's getting interviewed by Gwyneth Paltrow, and she's saying you should run for president. It's not because he's a great uh, steward of of yeah. capital. It's the philosopher king angle that's that puts him in that situation. He sought that was sought after from the early days. The Steve Jobs comparison was very deliberate. Um, you talk about how he kind of planted that seed. And then when that seed was planted, he amplified it. Um, so I, I yeah. totally agree with what you're saying there. Rob, I want to I want to get back to the, some of the philosopher king stuff, which certainly um, is worthy in and of itself of the book, which obviously principles was a large portion of the book. And I want to make sure that we hit on the Walter Isaacson stuff. I thought that was wildly fascinating. But getting back to you, you said Ray's a marketing genius. And early on in the book, this is one of the first things I said to Josh was this guy knew the playbook and he played the game earlier and better than anyone else did in terms of getting people to allocate. So here's a quote from the book, page 47, uh, chapter Pure Alpha. Dalio talked up a coming depression in 1988, a three-year recession starting in 1989, back to depression in 1990, was still beating the drum of depression in 1991, and had tweaked his call to quote a modern day version of a depression, like a hangover after one of those great parties, but one that never goes away, end quote, in 1992. Quote, the U.S. economy is behaving essentially as it did in the 30s, Dalio said, which, by the way, he's still pounding that drum. He loves Civil the 1937, loves the 1937 analog. Quote, this is not a recession. It is a depression. Um, and part of part of his pitch. And listen, I don't even necessarily do, think it's all the bond yeah, guys do that. But it, but it makes sense. It's it, it, it's it's right. fair. I don't think it's total <laughs> bullshit. It's like, listen, if you're a pension fund and you've got hundreds or of millions or billions of dollars invested to, to stocks and bonds. Here's your slice that's going to be uncorrelated should any of the stuff that I'm saying come to pass. Like that in and of itself is not too outlandish. And also, let's talk about sort of the process in the system. What he said was sort of irrelevant because a lot of it was really driven by whatever machine they created. That's that's So I did something that I, I hope no one else ever has to do, which is that I read every single media article uh, that Ray had ever been quoted in. Um, I think I got to the early 80s and then it was microfiche and I just couldn't imagine myself doing that. And it was a big reveal for me, honestly, even his you know unofficial biographer, that he had really been making the same call over and over and over again. Um, we should say, by the way, I, I actually obviously gave Bridgewater the chance to comment on all of this and I told them all of that. And they basically said I had been cherry picking you know, the quotes from over the years. And I said, well, isn't that really the point that he's, he's called it every which way? So no matter what happens, he can say, I, I saw it coming. Um, by the way, he also loves to say that he's not seeking attention. Please, it's like a Broadway oh show. Like, Please, not me. Um, as he you know, enters from stage left. But he had been seeking attention from the very first second. Um, he was on so Oprah. This, guys, that took me so long to get. I'm so glad you... I had heard rumors he was on Oprah, but you can't just get her archives. I had to yeah. find the right person at Harpo. It's not on YouTube. It's not on YouTube. Okay. He, there was rumors that that Bob Prince, his longtime partner, has a copy. He wouldn't give it to me. Um, no, that took a long – when I actually saw that and I saw this guy who claims that he wanted nothing else but to quietly become a billionaire 
and he's on Oprah in the late eight. I just, that was, that cost me $250, by the way. Oprah actually asked me for money for that clip. Is, is one of the big takeaways that everyone in asset management wants attention um, because it's less a financial business and more a communications business. And once you start from that premise, there is this asymmetric benefit of constantly predicting crises, which is that when the crisis doesn't happen, no one's really mad at you, especially if you're invested anyway and it's systematic. But when, when the crisis does happen and they remember you saying this is about to happen, the, the reward relative to the risk of being wrong is like 10 or 20x. And Think even if you lost money, even if you didn't nail the crisis in your yeah. portfolio, so even if you got the call right and lost your existing investor's money, so you what? still you win. Right. You, you get, still right. win. You get to tell people, get, I saw it coming. Investors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, let's, you, you and see you, that, right? <laughs> well, and for the 2008 crisis, he even he even begins to change history. This was a real reveal for me. Yeah, he was he bullish. Did. He's bullish. He also called it every which way. He said, this is the big one, but then he says, it's not. this is not going to be a financial crisis. When he goes and in his books, he goes back and he gives himself credit. He just quotes himself saying, this is the big one. He leaves out the part where he says, this is not going to be a financial crisis. I can't blame him, honestly. I don't know what I would do if I were so committed to promoting um, myself as like the seer, but uh, it is... It is remarkable that he gets away with it. He can just I want to ask you, history. Rob, I want to ask you, though, um, from, from Ray's perspective, he's written this somewhere. I think it was a subtweet about you and one of your <laughs> Wall Street Journal articles maybe years ago, or maybe it was just a comment on the media in general. Hmm. But one of the things he, he said is that, and I remember this because it, it kind of stuck with me. He said, one of the reasons why we don't have any heroes anymore is – the media's motivations now are different than they were, um, which we could debate. Um, but I think he's talking about like mid-century, you know, guys playing for the Yankees. They were horrible people. Like Mickey Mantle, they were all drunks, probably a lot of them hitting women, movie stars, politicians. But there was some distance between what the media was reporting versus like their real life. And obviously, as time has gone on, that distance has shrunk and we have social media and TMZ and Twitter. And I think he, like he was kind of talking about like, yeah, there's probably things about me that aren't perfect, but does everything have to be examined to within a millimeter? Um, like, can we have some mystique about anyone? And obviously that's self-serving because he's the subject that's being investigated in this case. But does any, is there any, uh, resonance of that to you? Is there, ha, had there ever been a point in covering this guy that it's like, all right, maybe I've, maybe it's enough already. And let's just let people be imperfect. Let people have flaws. And yes, he's getting away with stuff, but so what he's also doing these things and those things. And he's providing jobs. Like how, how do you, how do you feel about that, that conflict? Sure, or is it not I, a conflict for you at all? No, no. I think that's a real, I, I really appreciate the question. Because I, I cover and I've covered for my whole career, really, I like to say I cover really successful people, people who are trying to be successful and people who used to be successful. So okay. there, there, is, there is a limit to, to that. I, there's almost nothing in this book about his wife. Um, I, she's never had a job at Bridgewater. I, I, very, I did not go around asking about that. 
I only asked about his son uh, to the extent that his son used to work at Bridgewater and that sure. he's talked publicly about how the principals has helped him through what uh, his son passed away. Um, I, I agree there should be a limit. I, I also believe that when you put yourself out there and you tell people you have discovered the holy grail, yeah. I think you are inviting scrutiny. And um, particularly the way he describes um, this management system and the principles, um, I don't think that that's, um, that that's off limits. And um, sure, I, I actually, truly... If you read the book, um, well, I know you guys are, you're almost through, uh, and Michael's finished it. The, I very rarely mention the name of a junior level employee, um, unless you were on the management committee or up. Um, I just, I, I really thought about that very carefully. Um, Rob, I want to ask you about this. Help, help me square the circle. So, uh, you wrote the secret to Bridgewater's vaunted investment process as Jensen explained late into that evening was that there was no secret. Dalio was Bridgewater and Dalio decided Bridgewater's investments. True, there was Jensen and Prince and the rest of the so-called circle of trust and moniker that suggested an image of some grand investment meeting in the minds. But though more than one person may have weighed in functionally, only one on, one investment opinion mattered. There was essentially no grand system, no artificial intelligence of any substance, no holy grail. There was just Dalio in person over the phone from his yacht or for a few weeks, many summers from his villa in Spain calling the shots. So you say that and I'm like, Man, unbelievable. But then you also say a little bit later on that Dalio's sort of calls were as much as 10% of the portfolio. So if that's the case, it does seem that at least the vast majority of Pure Alpha, if that's what we're talking about here, really and truly was, for the most part, systematic and non-discretionary, not just raise whims, I'm bullish, I'm bearish. So which one was it? So you have to think, what does Ray Dalio consider a rule, quote unquote? And my findings and talking to a lot of people are that if Ray thinks of something and he says the euro is going to go up, he's going to consider that a rule because that's a rule from his his study of history. That's um, crazy. So that's <laughs> you see how crazy that sounds. So his intuitions became part of the machine. Correct, and he could that that ten percent as much as ten percent is me referring to him overriding those existing rules. Okay. Um, okay. Now, the when you say this to people at Bridgewater, they look at you like you're dumb and they say, of course. Right. Like to, to them, that's not even a reveal. They're like, well, of course, it was just raise rules. We told right. you, we literally uh, called them raise rules. Um, J- but the J- word- Jensen, oh, I'm sorry. Jensen doesn't come off great in the book and he's now the new Ray. Well, he comes and off better than Bob Prince did. He comes off better than many, but- he is. Do you think the system, quote unquote, system or the machine, is as um, is as influenced uh, by the whims of Jensen uh, of Greg Jensen as it was the whims of Ray Dalio, or do you think things have materially changed? They have changed one thing very importantly, which is now they have an investment committee. Um, right. If they want to uh, do those overrides. No one will ever be quite as influential as Ray was in the sense that Jensen and Prince just did whatever he wanted um, for right. decades, literally. Um, I still think that describing it as systematic is is meaningfully misleading. Um, okay. Systematic to me implies, you know, a quantitative system where, uh, you know, a renaissance technologies type, type approach. Um, yeah. 
Also, if you look at how Jensen has described it, he's still describing it in ways that make no sense. He's still saying, oh, it's 50% human intelligence and 50% machine. It's like stick to your story. There's a funny thing. I'll let it's you guys human find artificial it. intelligence. What don't you understand? Exactly. Um, <laughs> there's a funny thing. I'll, I'll let you behind the scenes here, which is, you know, they sent me, their lawyers sent me all these letters and they kept using this number, 98. They kept saying the system is 98% XYZ. It didn't matter what happened, what, what description it was. It was 98% of the rules, 98% of the risk, 98% of the trades to the point where while I was reading these letters, it was just like, you would just say it's 90% of anything at this point. The number is always 98. It's never 97, never 99. Um, they they could keep their story straight. So you don't spend, at least as far as I've gotten, you don't spend much of the book talking about the system itself uh, or you talk a lot more about the principles, like the way that the employees are supposed to carry themselves and think. You talk a lot more about that than you do try to peel back the onion and get into like the investment machinery, like what makes them make this decision to buy or to sell. You don't really spend a lot of time on that. And I understand now, because probably there's not much of a system there. Um, and, yeah, what and so, investment machinery? Right. What, okay. Like what, what the book would be very short. Right. So, but I found that interesting because it would seem to me that from all the coverage while you were writing the book, it sounded from the outside like the lawyers were trying to stop you from revealing trade secrets. It turns out though, based on the book itself, it wasn't about that at all. It was cultural secrets and anecdotes that could be embarrassing that they were really trying to squelch. Do I have that right? Yeah, let's let's be clear. The, the lawyers uh, were trying to bully me and my publisher uh, just as they bullied uh, former employees for, for years. So I'm really lucky not to get all jingoistic here, but in the United States of America, um, it really is an incredible place to be a, a reporter and a journalist. It doesn't work. You can send me all the letters you want. Um, we'll read them. But the the reveal of the book for me is that, you know, is that Ray Dalio is unprincipled, full stop. The, the reveal on the investing is once you realize that he lives in an alternative reality, it's like, well, of course, the investing also wasn't as he described it. How, of course. Rob, did you, you add, I, I, was, I, was, I was surprised by some of the emails that you revealed in the book from Ray responding. Uh, and some of them were more, say, humane, for lack of a better word. Like, I thought he came off decent in some of them. Was that your sense? He's absolutely a, a human. I've spent time with him. He's been kind to me in person. The, the, the thing about, you know, like Bad Blood, the Elizabeth Holmes book, which is great, is that Elizabeth Holmes in that book is, is a villain from right. the first page. Yeah, Ray, Ray's think, not a villain. I don't think of him as a villain at all. And what's really sad is... Many, many times the people that he hurt the most are people who he also, you know, hugged. And loved. For, and loved. If he could, yeah. And, and so that's, that's really complicated. If, if you talk to the people at Bridgewater now, even now, they just have this sort of uh, sadness to them. Um, because there is a genuine, I believe, effort on Ray's to pass along what he considers to be his lessons. And... Um, I wish he could see himself the way that so many other people see him. Rob, it's it's ironic that Steve Jobs was such a big touchstone for him. And you tell this story about him sending employees to every Apple store in the area. He wanted them to buy as many iPod touches as possible 
so that everyone in the firm could have one. And then, of course, he would upload the audio principles onto them. But still, he really had this affinity for Jobs, and Jobs was a son of a bitch. Uh, even the people that knew him the best and loved him and respected him and admired him from up close, uh, you know, they would they would not shy away from sharing like how difficult he was as a person with his family, with his coworkers. Um, do you think that that affinity that Ray Dalio had for Steve Jobs is like um, more meaningful maybe than just, oh, I, I really love Apple's products. Like you think there's more going on there subconsciously maybe? That's a, that's a big question, honestly. I would say, I would point out one meaningful difference, which is that Steve Jobs let everyone around him talk to Walter Isaacson and encourage them to tell Walter those stories that we read. Uh, Ray yeah. Dalio has threatened people um, and paid them a lot of money not to say anything about him at all. So okay. I'm not sure he's quite as open as as Jobs. The There is a big question, I think, of like, can you be successful and as successful as Ray Dalio and not have this this side of you? Only you know, Steve Cohen no. is not known how, as- how many How many people- on that list of uber success that don't turn into maniacs, Buffett. I, I think it's a short. Yeah, that's that's pretty much the list. And right, like like Tom, like Thomas Edison was not a nice guy. Steve Jobs was not a nice guy. You know, for for the most part, to people that he didn't have to be. Like it's, I guess maybe that's what I would love to just hear from you. Not that you wrote judgmentally, but what would you be like if? you got to a place where people were throwing billions of dollars at you and mostly it was because of your principles <laughs> and not that you would have concocted that, but I almost feel like you get to a certain point where you can't turn back. Like, it's not like he could have said in 2011, Hey guys, this whole principles thing, it's not real. You know, it's just me, Ray, you know, we're picking gold, <laughs> we're buying bonds. Like, you get to a point where you you almost have to start believing in your own mythology. Right, or, I'm, just, I'm just a trend I don't follower. know. Yeah, I don't, like I don't know. I, how do you – like I guess my question to you is like what would you be like if you were dropped into his seat and all of those things were going on because of stuff that you had done in the but past? But the thing is – sorry to cut you off. I know this is for Rob, but the thing is he did it. He cultivated this no, the no, entire no, time. It's not like it's he woke that's up why it's a billionaire. Like he built it. He built this image of himself. Yes. Yes, and also on the, on, the, on the Buffett quote that I just said, I know Buffett's personal life is a, is a whole other story. So I don't want to act like Buffett's like the picture of personal and, and pure success either. Speaking of the, the jobs thing though, Rob, did wait, you get wait, a chance? I wanna, wait, wait, I want to hear, Fine, I want to hear what, what, how Rob answers that. I'm just, I'm curious. Did you ever like hope, put yourself mentally in that position? I've actually spent probably an unhealthy amount of time putting myself mentally in, a, in Ray Talio's position. I, I honestly would hope that I would be able to hear the truth of what people were telling me. A big shock of this book for me, of the research, hmm. was all these emails that people had sent him in writing that he had replied to. So I knew these, he couldn't claim that he hadn't, where they're saying, Ray, you're harming people. Ray, our, our health insurance premiums are going up. Our, we're prescribing too much therapy, all this stuff. And that he just could not, not only did he ignore it, but in many cases, double down and is still going on TV and is still just apparently loving the attention that he was getting. I would hope that I have, I have some close friends from actually some of my best friends from, you know, growing up or some of my biggest fans while I was writing this book. And I, I would hope that I have people in my life who would, who could grab me by the neck and just say like, you're being a dick. Yeah. And then I would listen to them. Uh, 
eventually. You'd probably have to tell me more than once. But you know what I mean? Like there's a certain, you hope that you surround yourself. Well, I have, my, I have Michael for that. And he's he probably once, no, but it's, I need it. Probably once a week, he'll, he'll say, you know, it wouldn't have killed you to say whatever you said this way or whatever. And he's not always right, but he's almost always right. But it's not even the point, right or wrong. It's somebody in your life that you do business with, but that you're also um, friendly enough that you respect their opinion. Um, and you, you, like, you need people like that around you at Bridgewater the people around him were paid not to do that. Well, he was I, pretending. They were yeah. they were all pretending that they were giving him that yes. feedback. But, yes, but the, which but is like, almost but that's, that's like Bob that's Prince knew better <laughs> than to give feedback. Right. So, well, made, so go ahead. Well, I would just say Bob Prince didn't just know better. Bob Prince became a billionaire. Bob Prince's wife gave him uh, as a Rolls Royce or a Bentley. Um, it's in the book. He becomes a helicopter pilot. Like Bob Prince had great fun with all this money. Um, and was apparently able to ignore uh, all of the pain going on around him. Well, I thought the, the Bob Prince stuff, we'll, we'll leave it to people to read the book, but that was fascinating about how the money sort of owned him and all of that dynamics with him and Ray. So the reason why so much of this book is about the culture and the people instead of the financial aspect is because that's the image that he's worked so hard to cultivate. The, the book Principles, which became a which almost became sort of a New York Times bestseller. I forget what happened there or what the story is there and allegations of how many books he might have bought, which is, you know, <laughs> whatever. Um, but he so he became obsessed with Steve's jobs. And now is he working on a documentary of himself? Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. But did you he so he read the bio by Walter Isaacson, who also just did the Elon Musk one, and he desperately wanted Walter Isaacson to do for Steve to do for him what he did with Steve's jobs, which is Write a book, a biography of, of or Ray what Dalia. he just did for Elon Musk. For Elon, right? Did you yeah. did you get a chance to speak to Walter Isaacson about that interaction? I did, I did, and I will say, um, I asked Walter Isaacson, who I, I give him credit for talking to me. Um, I said, "Did you get paid for that speech?" He goes to Bridgewater. He gives a speech um, in the book. And I said, "Walter, did you get paid?" And Walter said, "I don't remember." And I said, "I I, I would remember." Um, I, I was like, "If I think I'd re I'd remember." Um, so he cultivates not just Walter, but a, a lot of other important people um, and, and pays them to basically uh, aggrandize him. And it's, um, I think Walter's very fortunate that he didn't write that book. I'll, I'll say that. So we, so, so as we, as we, by the way, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Mm -hmm. As we wrap up, um, my la um, we'll get to Michael, but my last question is, there's like this, uh, there, there's like this, uh, how, could I, how could I explain it? There's this feeling in and around the firm that despite the fact that Ray Dalio has retired as the CIO and is allowing the investment decisions to be made by others and by committee, there's this feeling like if he wanted to or, quote, felt like he needed to, he could be back in five seconds like he never left. Faster than is Bob Iger. Like, is that like how large he looms over that culture and the history? He, I mean, he's, he is the founder. He did lead this, this company to be, you know, the largest hedge fund ever. Like, what, what's, your, what's your take on how, how realistic that is? Yeah, I mean, guys, give me, give me a break. Like, I don't care whose title is, is, is whose. Ray Dalio is, the, is Bridgewater. He Still. in one in one sentence, all he has to do is go on any television program and say, uh, "I think they need me back," 
and they're in, in a fact, weird- if the returns, if the returns start falling, what do you think is going to happen? Well, he's already, I, I actually reported this in the Times, he's already suggested to the board that he needs to start his own fund inside Bridgewater to com- to help them and to compete uh, with the people that he left left behind. I mean, look, this is a guy who's been talking about retiring for 20 years, um, retires, and then basically immediately, uh, within three months, uh, starts talking about coming back to some degree. So- Rob, okay. last question from me. So A24 is making an Elon Musk movie, and I'm not mm-hmm. a big fan of all of these business biopics that are coming out, but the Bridgewater story is one of people, and so I think it actually would be very fascinating. Who who plays Ray Dalio? Have you thought about who plays Ray Dalio in the movie? The I think show my, exists. It's a Severance on Apple TV. Oh, they, my they, God, they, dude. Well, we've so, sold it to Amazon. Amazon is developing it. Uh, okay. The, oh, Amazon is developing a, this. You think it's a movie or it's a series or you don't know? I think it's a, I think it's a series, um, okay. but I also have told them I, I hope it gets made. So, you know, you can make it a cartoon so far as I'm concerned. Um, okay. I, for me- My, my the, first thought, this, this, is, this is obviously not going to happen due to his, his history, but Kevin Spacey would have been no. in an alternate universe. A great Steve Buscemi. Long, Steve Buscemi's oh. from, Long, oh, he's Steve from Long Island. He does the side part yeah, with the hair. That's a great call. He's lean. He's like you know, tallish and lean. It's Bissemi. It's Bissemi. It's got to be Bissemi. Rob, who have you I, thought about? So I've thought about uh, Henry Winkler because I think it needs to. Oh, the, the first needs old. to be kind. But well, it depends old. where you. It depends when you. But fair enough. But I think the the right person to play Ray Dalio needs to be instantly trusted. Well, you need a young Dalio too. Though. Like, mm. I, well, you don't need it, but it would be like you need Chalamet. To be seventies Dalio, like this guy. No, Chalamet be... plays me. Oh, Chalamet. Yeah. My no, what, about, what about Russell Crowe? Could he pull it off? <laughs> As what? <laughs> As Dalio. He's got some more size than Dalio. Um, I don't know about that. Well, it, I'm going to watch be. it if it comes out, and I hope it does. Rob, congrats on the book. It was fantastic. Really well done. Thank you both uh, for having me. Yeah. So let's let's let everybody know what is the official publish date. Is it is it out now? We got an advanced copy, but is it out right now? It's out now. The fund, Ray okay. Dalio, Bridgewater Associates, the unraveling of a Wall Street legend. Um, they only have two copies left at the Westport, Connecticut, Barnes and Noble, so they're getting they're getting more. Oh, good for I'm, you. I, I'm not surprised about that, uh, Rob. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Good luck with the book. Good luck thank with you. the eventual uh, series. We'll be watching for that. And uh, thank you for giving us such an amazing backstory, inside look at how you did it. And uh, we wish you all the best. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Hey, that's it from us, guys. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. We'll see you soon. All right, my gangsters and my gangsterettes. Let's see who's in the chat tonight. Let's see. Let's see. Cam Rackham is here. EH, Cliff's around. What's up, man? Hey, Sean. Shore 51, what's happening? Uh, who else is in here? Dave Wilson, Charm City Capital. Jose De La Rosa says, greetings. Greetings, Jose. Thanks for joining us. All right, we have a lot of stuff to do tonight. We have an action-packed show. Still getting earnings reports. Massive CPI report. Big rally on the street. We're going to get to all of it. Uh, but first... A word from our sponsor via my co-host, the one and only Michael Batnick. Michael, who's sponsoring the show tonight? It's our friends at Y Charts. Did you know that Ben and I are doing like a year-end 
a year-end uh, review, a wrap-up. Uh, oh, I'm it's watch, a strategy I'm, I'm gonna, session. I'm going to watch this. It's a strategy session. It's December. Oh, my God. It's December already. Well, I'm coming up on December. I'm sorry. All right. It's taking place in Sao Paulo, apparently. What does that mean, though? Like, <laughs> you, you and Ben are going to Brazil? We're going to Brazil to do it no, to do not. to do the webinar. No, no, no. That's not what that means. I don't know what that means, but we'll be doing right. it, and it's gonna be great. And why charts? It's it's everything I do. It's like my oxygen for charts. No, you got you know what? You, I've I've done this year end wrap up before with why charts. It's great. I always have a lot of fun with those guys. You guys are gonna kill it. I, I'm definitely gonna be watching that. How do people how do people register for it? There's the there's a link for the web for the webstration. <laughs> there's a link for the <laughs> webinar in uh, in the show notes in the YouTube. What are you th- you're right. gonna do like the year in charts and just like everything that happened this year? So many charts. All right, dope. I love just it. Just chart of the I year. Oh, what's the chart right. of the year? I don't know. All right, I'll be watching. Everyone in the chat seems to be really excited that you're going to Brazil for this <laughs> carnival. Here we come. <laughs> we have to get to John's the bottom. John's in Brazil of right now. John Grayson is in Brazil I know. right now. We have to get to the bottom of why it said that. Um, I was surprised that you didn't know who Virgil Abloh was prior to us coming coming live. Are you you're really eight, surprised? You're eight years younger than me. You didn't know what Kith was. like, And you're a Knicks fan. Like, no, I no, feel like I, I have to Kith. tutor you way too much on fashion. You should be hipper than I am. Like like I would expect that you would be. I don't, I don't know what we're, we're – Really? Yeah, like a little bit. I can't believe you don't know Ronnie Feig and Kith. The guy really? is doing the City Edition jerseys for the Knicks. He's like, you're a Knicks fan. Has all of this gone completely over your head? He yes. designed the logo in the middle of the floor. You have season tickets to the Knicks. Okay. Well, I see. How are you not like, all right. Uh, uh, I we'll stay get, in my lane. I stay in my lane. We'll, we'll figure that out. Okay. Uh, what, are we st- what are we starting with tonight? I don't I know. Like Anything happened today? You know Pretty what? Quiet if, day. <laughs> Let's start with October CPI. This is a showstopper. Um, basically, the way I read it is absent shelter, there is no inflation. And in fact, inflation was transitory. There were all these supply, supply shock Wrong. issues, labor, labor uh, market issues. They've been sorting themselves out. And here we are in a non-inflationary environment, absent shelter. Don't give me that I- bullshit. I was team transitory. <laughs> I was wrong. It was not transitory. It was. It just was like slowly transitory dude, and not quickly dude. transitory. So, you were right. Okay. I, ben and I were arguing. No, we were not right. Ben and I were yelling about this today. Yes, if you look at a history textbook of CPI in 20 years from now, you could say 20 years from now is transitory because you didn't lift through it. But here's the thing. As everybody who's watching and listening knows, the prices are not going down. So who gives a shit? Yeah, the the, the change in the pace of prices, I guess – Maybe no, it wasn't transitory. Bullshit. The prices are what they are. They're not going back. So stop. No, no, no. But that's nobody was saying transitory means the prices will go down. Everyone understood that by transitory, they meant the supply shocks would subside and the the rising prices would slow. I don't think everybody understood that. So you think people thought that they would go back to paying like 2019 prices for Starbucks? The the average American thought that. That's fair. Yeah, I absolutely. But I mean, they don't understand how the world works. But I do agree with you. Yeah, most. That's what the expectation was. Most people are not financial professionals. Let's throw this chart up, John. So, to Josh's point, pretty remarkable inflation. Look at this. Yeah, pretty good. What else do you want? Pretty good. Uh, 
let's look at some of the categories because you know where there still is food. Hold on, still- wait, Mike, stop. Explain to people. Go back. Just explain to everyone, the listeners, the watchers, the, the what tr- this chart the first is. Chart, the first chart is month over month, and this is really what people feel, right? You feel food, you feel volatility on a month over month basis. Yes. And for the first time in God knows how long, was it three years? There was no change at the headline level. There was no change in prices. 0.0 from, from September, September to October. Okay. To October. And Thank if you, you look year over year, this continues to trend in the right direction, whether you're looking at all items or core, which is less food and energy, it continues to go in the right direction. And that's great. It, it really is. It's a great thing. However- uh, you said uh, inflation has gone everywhere. Not really. I mean, food prices are still going up. Like the cost of food is is still going up. So October food was up zero point three percent. Food at home up zero point three percent. Food away from home up zero point four percent. Eating is still really expensive. Fine. It's annoying. I I see you're eating, and I raise you. Energy prices tumbling. Yeah, it's great. Uh, gasoline minus 4.9% from September to October. So like, like, what do you, like, what do you want? You know what I mean? That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying like every aspect of inflation is in check and perfect. I'm saying on balance, the cost of living is slowing to the upside and gradually, I hope going to be in a place where yes, we won't get back the prices of 2014. However, the 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 lack of acceleration will eventually make people feel better. Pro- eventually, that's the key point. The problem no, I know, is I know. the I problem is people get used to their wage increases very quickly. Yes. You get an 8% raise, great, wonderful, but holy shit, they can't get over how expensive everything is. All right, so month over month CPI is flat, year over year, which Matters less, I agree with you, like to regular people, but just for the record. Matters for the year, Fed. Yeah. Year-over-year inflation is 3.2%, which is still significantly higher than the, the stated 2% annual inflation target. However, keep in mind, that is down from 9% last summer. 9%. That is a very wow. big fall in the acceleration of prices. Um, shelter went up in, uh, in October. So this is still the issue. Um, I think that issue will sort itself out. Uh, I don't, what do you mean sort itself out? It will sort itself out in the, in the CPI report. With rents, Josh, think- it will sort it. Hold on. It will sort itself out in the CPI report. It will not sort itself out in terms of rent going down or home prices going down. Is I that think, what you mean? I, th- I, th- I think rents will fall. I don't think you're going to get a real benefit in, uh, to purchase a home because we have this supply issue that the Fed really can't fix. Correct. So last week we saw the 30-year tumble from yeah. 8% to 7.6% and mortgage applications went crazy. So if heaven forbid, and I'm, I'm kidding, but if rates fall, if mortgage rates fall from 8% to 6.5% or 6%, prices are going to skyrocket again. That's not great. That's not great. It's so, so, I mean, it's, 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 it's possible. We shouldn't rule out that possibility. Um, but I do think 18 months ago, we were talking about stuff like ports being, you know, being choked with, with, um, with, with, uh, shipping containers that there weren't, there wasn't enough labor to move that stuff. Yeah, we were talking bizarre. about, we were talking about finished, um, Lincoln navigators, sitting in dealer lots because they were awaiting a chip 
Like that aspect of inflation, none of us have ever experienced it before uh, in our lives. And I don't think that's going to make a return. So Sam Rowe uh, had a chart showing, uh, I guess the New York Fed did. The New York Fed's global supply chain pressure index, that is well below 2019 levels. So all of that stuff is over. That's in the past. So I think we could say like mission accomplished on that aspect. And that was the part that we knew was transitory. Correct. We knew that was – we knew. But we also were worried about this wage hike uh, spiral and what that would do to rents, and it had a huge impact. So it's been I, very problematic. I don't want to be the guy – I forget which college football player dropped the ball at the one-yard line. Was that Washington State? I can't remember over the weekend. doesn't matter. I'm not a college football uh, guy. He thought he, scored, he thought he scored a touchdown. Yeah. So <laughs> but then they ended, wanna, up getting, they ended up getting it back, though, uh, and winning the game. I don't want to be that know. guy. And yeah. prematurely uh, act like we scored a touchdown. It would really be remarkable if the Fed pulls us off despite themselves. You know what I mean? Like yeah, they, they did didn't not. Think they could do it. They did not, in my opinion, and I think probably most people watching and listening, they did not handle the situation great. Waiting t- until March 2022 when inflation was already whatever it was before they started hiking rates. Like they they were so far behind. And if the economy manages a soft landing, it's not because of anything that they did. Like they accidentally pulled off the greatest soft, the most improbable soft landing of all time. It's pretty funny. Uh, You know who's not getting bailed out, uh, at least not yet, by today's uh, lack of inflation. And that is the incumbent president in the White House, Joe Biden. One of the things, so you and I are too young to have lived through as adults, not just as investors, but just as like people. We're too young to have lived through a period like this. Um, but people in the 1970s were incredibly disillusioned, uh, between the scandals of Nixon and, you know, he obviously did what he did, but really just like the, the general malaise and Carter and Ford. And these guys were all guys were all not, none of them are on or are going on Mount Rushmore anytime soon, but inflation, it turns out plays a really big role in how people feel. And they hate it more. I think they hate it more than a weak job market, honestly, when you read the polls. So Financial Times. I, th- I think, I th- Josh, I'll take it a step further. I think people might hate inflation more than higher taxes. Yeah. Uh, depends on the people, but maybe. Like, um, like, that's how bad it is. That's how bad it is. Right. It's up there. Like, it's, yeah, it's, it's up there. It's yeah. at that level of, of badness in the, in the minds of, of – all right, so uh, Ross School of Business at, at University of Michigan and Financial Times. This is a a poll. We don't do a ton of this stuff, but this was this was like eye opening to me because I have never seen anything like this before. Only fourteen percent of American voters believe that they are better off financially now than when Joe Biden took office. I want you to keep in mind that that's during a period of time where we have added. 200,000 jobs on average per month, and GDP has grown. You have 14% of American voters think they're better off financially, which I think means that 86% don't. That I mean, that's, that's extraordinary By the way, look at me. the spread. Look at the spread between- Republicans uh, and, and Democrats. No, between yeah, hurt no a shit. lot. Between hurt a lot. Like, in general, do you think Biden's economic policies have hurt a lot? It's like- Four percent for Democrats and sixty-five percent for Republicans. Truly hilarious. Fine. But, so that so that part you have to expect. Seventy yeah. percent um, of voters chart off thought Biden's economic policies had either hurt the U.S. economy or had no impact, including thirty-three percent 
who said they believe the president's policies had hurt the economy a lot. And obviously, it's a lot of Republicans saying that. Only 26% said his policies had helped. So like half the Democrats will not say that they are in better shape or that the economy is in better shape as a result of Biden. Meanwhile, um, Biden enacted a massive stimulus plan within well, Judge, outside, weeks outside, of, of his inauguration. Outside of his stimulus, that, I honestly, I mean, I don't pay attention to politics, but what are his economic policies? I don't even know what they are. Uh, I don't know if he knows what they are. <laughs> I don't think he's following it that closely, to be honest with you. A lot of this is like just relying on like the stock market not to crash and inflation to come down. I don't really know like that his policies really mean anything. But still, just the fact that you have job growth and you have the level of home prices and, and the stock market, that's how pernicious yeah, yeah. inflation is. Yeah. Let, let me just do the rest of this. Really so you're quickly. right. This has, this has less to do with Joe Biden and much more to do with inflation. I don't, right. I don't think any president who's sitting in the White House at this moment – um, would would look much better. I agree with Because that. that's how bad inflation is. But this is important. In 1980, Ronald Reagan, he was running for, for his first term, famously asked voters, are you better off now than you were four years ago? And that set the stage for a huge victory over Carter. He crushed him. Landslide. A similar poll conducted for the FT four years ago showed that most Americans felt they had not improved their financial position under Trump, but their pessimism was far less pronounced. In November 2019, only 35% of voters believed they were better off under Trump. So that's like versus 14. What's this other- But wait, let me, hold on. Let me, let me take that back for a second. Actually, actually, I believe that if Trump were in office right now, they would be doing an incredible job messaging how, how fast inflation was falling. And the oh, that's a good point. The, re, I the percentage see that. of responders who thought that the that they were much better off or someone better off would be way higher if Trump was in the White House than Biden. Way higher. Yeah, the only person worse at selling the Biden economy than Biden is Kamala. But like between the two of them, like nobody, they're they're just not getting through. They're not nobody. Nobody is hearing about job growth. Nobody is hearing really much about the Inflation Reduction Act or the Chips Act. These are things that actually created jobs and and are helping people. And you don't have to agree with them to acknowledge that there are a lot of people who are benefiting and they're really bad at selling it. And yeah. I, I'm not like a partisan, like I don't give a shit, honestly. Uh, I only care about the stock market and I'm the president of the stock market. But I'm just saying like, these guys are terrible. All right. Asked what was the source of their biggest financial stress? 82% of respondents said price increases. This is all inflation. It's, it's, all, it's all that matters. It's all that Three matters. Three quarters of respondents said rising prices posed the most significant threat to the U.S. economy in the next six months. They still think, they still think that that's the biggest threat in the next six months with inflation literally crashing. Three quarters of respondents say that that's what they're most worried about. This is a failure to communicate, is it not? I think so. When is the, uh, is the election a year from now? <laughs> no, seriously, when is the election? Yeah, it's usually November. Yeah, right? It's a year from now. <laughs> yes. All right. It, uh, it's going to so be one of the worst, most dispiriting uh, elections we, we have ever seen. This is literally the anyone but these two guys election, and yeah, uh, this please, is what we're for facing. For the love of God. All right, number of U.S. households with net worths between $1 million and $5 million has grown to nearly $13 million as of 2022. So this is just one of – now, obviously, this is you know people with money, but 
there are so many, there's so much empirical evidence to show that the economy is at least doing yeah. okay. At 13, least wait, 13 million okay. households have net worths between one and five. Pretty amazing. And, and that number uh, around the time of the financial crisis was, looks five like million. five million. Right? Here's so the good news, Josh. So now it's 13. Here's the good okay. news. The, what really matters to the market is not who's in the White House or Congress, the House or the Senate. It's earnings. Uh, this is from Bank of America. So profits matter more than politics. They show the percentage of years where total returns were positive based on political party versus earnings. And political party, uh, 43% for Republicans, 57% for Democrats. Again, that's probably, in fact, not probably, that's noise. Uh, but look at the profit cycle. 67% of the time, the market is high when there's positive earnings per share growth and only 33% when there's negative. Oh, they're saying like, you might think that it matters Republican or Democrat, but that's almost an even split. Right. What really matters is whether or not there's positive or negative earnings per share growth. I would have guessed that. Yeah. I think it's controversial. I think, I'm just I think most, Yeah, I think most people would, would, would guess that that trumps whether or not. This is, a be, this is a little bit of a chart crime because they should have done the first two bars in red and blue and the second two bars in like uh green and some like fine, whatever. Uh, let's talk about the reaction within the market today. Uh, hell of a day. So 93 chart on please 93% of stocks in the S and P 500 were positive today. Yeah. It's the highest reading since, uh, since March of this year. So we'll take it. It was broad based. Look at all this green. Look at all this beautiful green, John. Ooh, what a day. What a day. Next and, chart. And you, know, and, and you know what else? What else? The stocks that were the hardest hit were were leading the charge. And I feel like that that needed to happen. Like we were talking about, uh, I'm sorry, chart off for one second. Remember we were talking about catch up versus catch down? And if you're somebody who has a bearish disposition, catch anytime down. you see negative breadth in the market, your gut instinct is always going to be to tweet that, you know, the market's going to cat, like the, the, the leading stocks are going to, the generals are going to get shot eventually. If you're a pos- if you're positive or bullish, your mentality is going to be, all right, we have some leadership stocks. They're carrying the baton right now, but the rest of the market will catch up. And I don't know what happened in one day, but. Well, how about this? Forget about bull- <laughs> if you're bullish or bearish. If you like using data, you would have said, because we showed this chart. I think who did this? There was Warren Pies. There was a lot of people that we, earlier in the year. When you're in a bull market and there is a divergence, typically the rest of the market catches up. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when there's like a washout in breadth. Like that washout sets the scene for a big rally. And we also did the thing about small caps from Dietrich where they had that huge four-day move like a month ago. And we talked about like what usually results from that. Well, we just saw it. Like today was a, a stupendous day for the small cap area of the market after a lot of pain. Next um, chart, please. So this is from Mike Zicardi. All right. So, so, all right. So there we go. Fit percentage of stocks, S&P at a 50 day high. This looks good. Of course. Right. We'll 23%. take it. 23%. All right. This is from Mike Zicardi. So Holy the Russell, two, shit. Look at this. The Look Russell at 2000, the, the Russell 2000 beat the S&P 500 today 
by 3.47%, which is almost the largest single day outperformance since the great financial crisis. Wow. Look at this. Uh, Eric Eric Jackson tweeted, this is from Morgan Stanley. uh, Today's IWM move is a four standard deviation event relative to its trailing three-month realized vol, the second largest in IWM's history. Pretty incredible. Yeah, like we got like, right. We got we're getting the catch up. And instead of it taking six months, <laughs> they're, gonna, they're gonna do it in, in, in a week. So it's, all of this, out. all of this is in response to uh a scenario where it's hard to envision the Fed not being done. Um right? Yeah. Yeah. And I was like uh I was doing a little bit of a heat check today, just looking at like uh so uh real estate investment trusts were leading the rally. That's a rate story. I mean, everything the, in here is a rate story. Everything in here is a rate SL story. SL Green was up rates, 18, rates just was up collapsed. 18%. Rates just collapsed across Regional the board. Regional banks were up 7%. This is a this is just a rate move. Not yeah. just. I mean, it's it's huge. Put this thing up, the cyclicals, home builders. So this is home builders up 5.88% on the day, went out of the HOD. Metals and mining screaming five percent. I got to be honest, not to not to be a wet blanket. These charts kind of suck. Like, who cares? Well, just I, it's show, it's showing the way the leadership was economically sensitive. These are Dow transports up three and a half. I guess that's why they're relevant. They're not great charts because they're one day. No, you're just, you're just showing. Interest. We we could have done a better way of demonstrating where the leadership came from. That's all I'm saying. All right, you, all right. Well, life life goes on. Put up the dollar. What do you want to say here? What do you want to say now, tough guy? Yeah. No, what do you I mean no, this, this is, is this is this is as expected. If you asked, this is, I didn't look at this, but if you said what did the dollar do today, this got is what crushed. I would have said. Of course you would have said it got crushed. This is this is concurrent. You look at for the last really two years, you look at the dollar, you know what the stock market did. All right. Are we getting follow through? That's all I want to know. Between now and uh Thanksgiving is next week. Are we rallying Listen, into, you know how into I feel, Turkey you, Day? You know how I feel about positioning. Will we Position- will Will we fill the gap from today? Possibly. Are people underinvested? And when I say people, I mean people that move the market, giant pools of capital. Are they trailing and underinvested? Yes. Will they chase into the year end? Yes. Will so the market funny. rally into year end? Yes. This guy just stopped. This guy just stopped me three hours ago, and he's he's like, "What a move, right?" I I don't know who he is. What a move, right? He like he knows who I am. So I'm like, yeah, he goes 8% and I've been fighting it the whole way. I've been like, um, I've been, I've been, what is it? Whatever he's doing, selling calls or something. Uh, uh, and all I said to him was, listen, I, I'm not a swing trader. I don't really know how that game goes. I would just say wrong time of year to be fading rallies. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like I, I, I get that people do that and make money. You're trying to make 1% on a down day. You have a, a market acting this way. I don't know if that's what you want to do. Now, now, of course, we'll be blood red tomorrow, but I sure. just... Um, you know how much the NASDAQ 100 is up here to date? Uh, 42? Just about. Unbelievable. Just about. It's like unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Uh, actually, no, it's more. The NASDAQ is 100 is up 45% year to date. I mean, it's, it's crazy. It, it doesn't happen if it doesn't go down 35% last year, True. but still. And the equal weight... The equal weighted version of the NASDAQ 100 is up 22%. So, all right. What do you got? Unbelievable. Uh, all right. Where are we going next? Let's talk about. Uh, oh, did you watch this video from. Yeah, yeah you did? 
Yeah, but I Let's I, I want to so hear what you want to say about it. This is from this is is it, was this Tesla? Are these Tesla I, robots? I I don't know. Yeah, it's Optimus. That's Tesla. So we're watching. For those of you who are listening to the podcast, we're watching a robot. They put a like human humanoid robot. It's a it's a robot that looks like a human being. They put blue blocks and yellow blocks on a table, and the robot is sorting it. The blue blocks go over here. The yellow blocks go over there. And then later in the video, we're not showing the whole thing. Later in the video, a human being comes in and starts like moving them around. And the robot like knows like, no, no, no. This still goes over there. This is still yellow. That is still blue. I mean, this- is it too late to stop this? I don't like it. Yeah, it's too late. It's too, it's late, too late, right? I don't lo- I don't love it. Why do they have to look like humans? Why do we have to do that? Like, a, like a, a, is, is, is the human form the ultimate form for a robot per se? Like did, why? Why can't did you they see look like iRobot? rolling garbage cans? Or did you see iRobot? Yeah, I don't like any of that. I don't like it. I mean, Amazon warehouse. It's gonna happen because I Amazon hate it. Amazon warehouses but, are probably already all for the most part run by robots. Yes, but, but Amazon Amazon robots look like giant arms or right, look right. like conveyor belts or they're it's like a screen that's got like sensors in it. They're, this guy's building replacement humans. I don't want. I don't like that. I mean. I, you know, there's nothing I could do about it. I just, I, pre- I prefer my robots to be less anthropomorphic and I would like to see them look more like objects because that's what they are. I don't, I don't like them mimicking us in form, in function. Um, I wish it weren't too late, but I, I suppose it is. Did you see the AI pin from Humane? Did you watch this demo? No, show, show this one to me. I didn't see this. So what, what takes place here? It's it's basically like a GoPro and a cell phone and Google in one device. And it's here. Like, it's coming. So these are X. These are X Applers, where I does believe. The, where does the device go? It's on her coat. It's on her coat? It's like a, it's like a lapel pin? Yeah, there, yeah, there it is. Okay. So. All right, I'm okay with this. It's, it's 750 bucks and it's V1. And like all of this AI shit, like it's the next four months and the next five years are going to be wild. I agree. Beyond our wildest imaginations. For me, it's going to be, and you know, I wear sunglasses pretty much like 18 hours a day. For me, the glasses are going to be the thing when they have a form factor that you're like cool with walking around all day. Meta has the Ray-Bans. No, I know. Yeah, and like coming. that's where that's where I could like get comfortable with just the idea of augmenting my vision with data. Like when I drive a car, when I drive a car, the interface with my like my Tahoe, it's got multiple screens and it's constantly peripherally feeding me information, the temperature, what direction I'm heading, how's my oil? Like I'm okay with that in a set of glasses. I think that's cool. Like to like just be getting updates on what's going on. So I know that's coming and I, I think it's great. I don't like um, the, the humanoid robots. That I could do without. So check this out. Generative, there was, so the FT did a piece. Generative AI is already taking white collar jobs and wages in the online freelancing world. So there's a chart on the left Helping showing defend. the percentage change in monthly freelance jobs and they they annotate before and after ChatGPT launched. Um, and then they show earnings and the percentage change of jobs is like down 3%, but earnings are getting massacred. So this shit is, you mean how much people can earn? Yeah. Is that not what I said? 
No, I, you said earnings. I was thinking like corporate earnings. You mean like weight, like individual, like earnings is in income. So what I was thinking, workers. what I was thinking is probably the task people who do the same thing repetitively, very narrowly, over and over again. Those are the people that you could very quickly have AI take their work from them, and that's something like uh, just like thinking out loud, like a copy editor, and just being able to feed a piece of text into this thing and have it corrected for you saves you from having to Venmo somebody $100 for doing that. And I could completely see that. But outside of writing and like really shitty AI generated art, what else do we think is like immediately replaceable by the current version of AI? I think it's pretty narrow. By the current version, maybe, but by what's coming, like a lot of just tax preparers, like that should all be extracted from documents, and it will be very soon. Right, Paper but it's going to be the ta- but it's going to be the tax preparers who train themselves to do yeah. it, and they'll be able to see more clients. But they're not going away. There will Turbo be, tax there w- didn't didn't lessen the the need for this. Is, dude, this is not Turbo tax. There will be people that are displaced, but I think the productivity gains that we're going to have from these things is going to be as big as some people are saying. I think it's going to be huge. Um, Dave Wilson's in the chat saying he'd rather talk to a robot than a than a human doctor. Uh, what do you think about that? Uh, I, don't I don't know. know. I well, want, like, I'd rather talk to a, 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 a doctor with a robot than a doctor without a robot. Yeah, but I want like a little empathy. I don't want just like the cold, hard logic. So John, like- Bur- John Byrne Murdoch, the author of this article – Summed it up as such. He said, taken together, the studies tell us three things. First, how the use of generative AI is regulated will be key to its impact on jobs. Online freelancing is about as unregulated as a a labor market as you will find. Without protections, even knowledge workers are in trouble. Second, the more multifaceted your job, the less risk of it being automated out of existence. The gig worker model of performing one fairly narrow task for multiple clients is especially exposed. And third... To get the most out of Gen AI while avoiding its pitfalls, we should treat it as an extension of ourselves, collaborating closely and checking its outputs as we would our own. It is not a separate, infallible assistant to whom we can defer or hand over responsibility. Yeah, I think that's right. That's the big takeaway. This is a tool to be used. It's not really a replacement for most people. It well, might we replace a lot it, of the things that we're doing manually. To be. We don't know what it's going to become. Of course. But just thinking logically... There is an element of dealing with another person that is important in various pursuits, but then that person, that the professional, no matter what industry you work in, undoubtedly, there are things that you do manually or in your head that could be and will be done by AI. And at first, it'll be a relief. And then maybe later you'll say, oh, wow, (laughs) I better add some value on top of this because this thing is now doing most of my job. And I, I think that that's definitely a fear that's looming large uh, and will probably intensify. More, right, jobs about- will be cre- more jobs will be created because of this than lost. Yeah. The thing is the gap in between, though. Yeah. Yeah, it's tough. It's, I agree. It's, it, you don't lose a job on Monday to AI and get a new one on Tuesday. Correct. All right. Let's do retail uh, earnings. Uh, we got Home Depot today. The earnings were not great. And the not stock- terrible. Not terrible. The guidance was not great. But the stock ripped. It went up because- People are willing to look through softness this year if they think that uh, rates will stop going up and the housing market will unfreeze. That's how that's how I'm reading it. What are your thoughts? Well, 
the guidance wasn't that bad. Um, no, they just said big ticket, big uh, ticket big is, tickets, is yeah. the problem. But especially considering what comps were, so same star sales were what down three percent or something. Consider and considering how hot Home Depot was, not so bad. But you're hundred percent right. Today's move was nothing to do with earnings or what they said, because if how about this? If CPI came in hot today, this stock would have been down eleven percent. Annihilated. Uh, CEO Ted Decker said that while consumers were still committing to smaller projects, Home Depot continued to see pressure in certain big ticket discretionary categories. Same store sales for big ticket items fell 5.2% year over year. So that's what's going on. We all knew that was what was going on. It's not the first time it's happened. I think that expectation was sort of baked in. The guidance Home Depot gave is earnings per share falling between 9 and 11% from a previous range of falling seven to 13. So they sort of narrowed guidance, but the low end got a little bit worse. John, can we throw up the chart uh, of the the dot chart? Look how many Home Depots there are. 2,300 stores across North America. This might be unnecessary. I don't know. We have one in the town next to us. I I guess I like that it's that close. Maybe I go three times a year. I love it. I'm not not like a building person. I don't do anything. But I I like that it's there. I like that it's there. Oh, you know what I get there every year? Like a lot of those bug uh, bug sprays that you attach uh, okay. to the hose by Cutter. Like I'll go there and buy like two packs of those and I do like a party spray before I have people at the pool. Like I, I kill a million bugs at a clip with that. That's why I go to Home Depot. All right. You know what hit an all-time high today? All-time? Walmart. You know what else? Costco. Yep. All-time. Yeah. I believe it. As in never been higher. Costco doesn't report until middle of December. They're a late reporter or an early reporter, depending on how you want to look at it. Walmart is Thursday. Target is Wednesday. Target has really uh, been the problem child in this space. And I I asked Stephanie Link. She actually follows these companies really closely. I said, why is Walmart making record highs and Target making 50 tweak lows? And she said, it's just grocery. Like, in other words, there's really not much different with the execution, like how these guys are running their businesses. Walmart has way more grocery, which is a great business right now because of inflation, and Target doesn't have enough. I saw and somebody tweet something like, Walmart loves lowering prices and Target loathes lowering prices. Maybe, but like I'm saying in this environment, like how could Walmart and Target look this different? It's it's mix, it's it's mix. It's it's what they're selling. Well, the I gotta most tell of. you, the stock itself, while abominable as it is, which target made, target made a made a higher low, yeah. and has not has gone sideways since September since late September. So it's not going to take much for the stock to rip. I saw not the guy a, on TV. I saw the guy on CNBC, um, Cornell. He looked he looked like uh, he saw a ghost. I'd much rather be long. Retail theft. Yeah, it's bad. I'd much rather be long than short. I'd much rather be long than short going to earnings. I'd much rather have nothing to do with the stock. Uh, All right. That's all we have to say on there. What do you got next? All right. So Tesla is doing to cars what Netflix did to streaming. And what I mean by that is they made it so that the other automotive companies, Ford, General Motors, Stellantis, and all the others, they had no choice but to follow Tesla off a cliff into a shitty business. Now the difference is that I guess people thought Netflix, people thought streaming was going to be that there was going to be a pot of money on the other side of the rainbow, 
and there wasn't, but they made it so that there was no choice. So look at this chart of Disney's market cap divided by Netflix. Disney was, I don't know, 20 times the size of Netflix, and it just was going down every single year, down, 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 until Iger finally said, all right, we got to do something. So back in 2017, in one of the earnings calls, Iger announced that Disney Plus was coming in 2019. And that they, and were, gonna go, it, they were going all in on it. And it, it did. They did. And uh, it didn't stop the demise. And there's, there's other factors. It's not just streaming, but certainly there's a huge part of it. So Net- check out Netflix what- now has a bigger market cap than Disney is what this chart is showing. Like it's been flirting with that for six years, but now it's like official. I was about to say, no, it doesn't. But yeah, no, it does. No, it does. <laughs> it does. Netflix market cap is- showing me here. Netflix market cap is bigger the, than Disney. And guess what? If it's below the, the one line, it's it's bigger. Guess what? I don't I don't know that I would bet on, on Disney ever being bigger than Netflix. Do you know what this week was? What, this the Marvels? Week- this week was the well. Yeah, they don't want to talk about that. What? Who are they making that movie for? I saw Who do they that. Think is going to that. Movie? I saw the coming attraction. What movie did I see recently? I saw the coming attraction to the Marvels, and I said to Ben, "I I saw the worst trailer I've ever seen in my life." That's but I don't. But I don't understand. Even if it was a well-made movie, which it clearly wasn't, who is that for? Nobody. Because the. Mo- like no, literally nobody wants that. Um, so and it, this, they got rid of the junk. That's the last one. I think they're going to shift to X Men. Here's, pro- here's the problem. Here's the problem, though. Here's the problem. So th- this week, I asked you, you know what this week is? It's the one year anniversary of Iger returning. Okay. It's hard to believe that's been a year already. It's been a year. And what he said on the conference call last week is that that's what I bought the, the course cor- the course correction is over, and now I'm back to growth plans. Yeah. And that's great. And I think it might have put a bottom in, into the stock. Mar- and- Marvels, was, Marvels was rock bottom. Not Maybe not for the stock. Maybe, I hope. But they're done with that shit. They're not flinging stuff against All the right. wall anymore. So leaving ESPN out of this discussion, purely from a IP, like a creative standpoint, three Marvel movies a year is too many. They be, they they don't feel like events. You're stretching the creative team too, too much. You're spreading them too thin. And you're diluting the power of your own releases. So stop that. The TV shows are abysmal. And a lot of this is Worse there was abysmal. a period of time there was a period of time where they just couldn't lose. Yeah. That's not now. You I honestly think like you have to have multiple conversations. Does the world really want this? So with the Marvels, here's a problem. It should have been Captain Marvel 2 because Captain Marvel 1 was a billion-dollar movie. But then number two, secondarily, like, do we have to do it? Yes, it was a billion-dollar movie. Most billion-dollar movies get a sequel. But, like, do we have to? That's the question they're going to start asking themselves before they just greenlight the next $300 million budget movie. And the other thing that people need to remember, and we're going to talk about the other streamers in a second, it's not just the budget of the movie. Every movie requires two and a half times that amount to be spent uh, or, or to be made in, for it to show a profit because of how much it costs to release this stuff. So if you're a Disney shareholder, the bottom line is you don't want to hear about endless cost cutting with no growth plans in sight, but the cost cutting was very necessary to put a bottom into the stock. And I think that's what he might have been able to accomplish. What do you think? Have we seen the lows that we'll see for Disney? For the stock, I I I do think so. Um, 
But I I'm think coming, that this I'm is, coming around. I'm coming around to that. Maybe I'm not in it. There's I'm not just, a ton of there's not a ton on the calendar for next year for for Marvel. There's Deadpool. There's Venom, which is like half them, half Sony. I don't know, I don't know the splits. And then there's Craven the Hunter. So there's not a lot of other bullshit that's hitting next year. Deadpool, Deadpool may not may not hit its uh, hit its date because of the um, actors strike and the screenwriter strike. Uh, that'll be a big movie because what they're doing is they're relaunching the Marvel Cinematic Universe with that. It's the first of the new characters that they got in the Fox deal. So Wolverine's that they in that. Yeah, and I'm telling so you, the next thing is X Men. They're gonna go. They're gonna kick ass on X Men. X Men, Fantastic Four, Daredevil, some of the stuff they haven't had access to. They, that's going to be how they're not going to relaunch Avengers right no, away. Yeah. They have a couple of Avengers movies planned. They're probably going to start bringing back the old cast because that's what the fans want. But what they're really, I agree with you. They do have more levers to pull, and like Spider Man will be the bridge that gets them because that's still working. For if they, whatever reason. If they brought somehow Robert Downey Jr. back and Captain America back, it would be a billion dollar movie. But but getting getting back to getting back it'll, to it'll probably cost him a billion dollars. <laughs> fine, you're right. <laughs> getting back to Elon sucking in the other automotive companies. So Ford Motor lost sixty two thousand dollars on each electric vehicle it sold during the year's third quarter. Yeah. But that looks like this is from the journal, I think. That looks like a business success compared to Lucid Motors, the luxury electric vehicle maker. On Tuesday, they reported losing $227,000 per car sold in the latest quarter. In no, this is hilarious. In November 2021, John Chardon, please, it reached a stunning next chart, please. It reached a stunning market value of $91 billion despite having only delivered 125 cars oh, in its history. This one, Rivian is now worth $14 billion. Lucid is worth $8 billion. And they lose money on every car, Lucid? Amazing. Not, not only do they lose money, they lost $228,000 per car. So previous chart, John, the one that Just I had to skip more. over. So Tesla is doing volume. fine. You know, Tesla's done fine over the last year. But look at Lucid, Rivian, General Motors, Ford. And these companies have no choice but to compete and it's really, really difficult. So the CEO of Ford said, a great product is not enough in EV business anymore. We have to be totally competitive on cost. And credit to Elon. He was talking about this on the earnest call. Like, it's ideas are so easy, right? Anybody could design a car. To yeah. actually do it is so hard. So I agree. going back to the Ford CEO, the key levers to deliver this competitive cost structure are scaling, vertical integration, and batteries. Batteries. They're the single biggest cost component of any EV. And then we heard this week... That one out of every five public EV charging attempts is a failure. That's from a 2022 study uh, in San Francisco. This shit is really hard, and Elon oh, is the, winning. The, equi the equipment is shit. Uh, yeah, credit to Elon. He saw the battery thing coming a mile away. He was making his own batteries. He was contracting with Panasonic a decade we were, ago. Like we were talking was, None of this was a mystery to him. Last time he was on about the cost cuts, like, is that should that be a sign that demand is not there? Or that Elon is absolutely squeezing the necks of his competitors. And it looks like the latter. Do you think the Cybertruck is going to be a bomb? Or I mean, they'll it's probably so, sell it's, it's it out because so, they're not making a lot. But It's so heinous. Even if it wasn't, do you think that just the idea, does anyone I'm want sorry, that? I'm sorry. I hate to like car shame people, but what type of asshole is going to buy that? Oh, you know what type of asshole. The assholes that you follow on Twitter all day. I that's mean, it though. That's the, that's the audience. It is. The audience is for people who want to tweet a picture of their Cybertruck. That's, that's all. That's it's just for people it. that have way too much money. All right. So probably not that important to, to the company. Um, let's do streaming storylines. 
So first chart, John, please. This is Disney versus Paramount, Netflix, Warner Brothers. Uh, all right, Roku, sure. Not quite the same type of thing. Uh, if, if, we, if you close your eyes and you pull Roku out of this and you just think about um, these companies, they uh, had a horrible year. They had a horrible 2022 as well. Huge rallies in the, in the, in the last couple of days. I think these were stocks that require lower rates for people to feel better about whether or not they'll be able to keep raising money, I suppose. Um, let's do the market cap. Wait, chart. hold on, Josh. Let me just lay you up here. Just chart okay. it for one second. So here's here's a chart. Here's a quote from, from John Malone. By the way, John said, oh my God, the Y chart page auto updated to my location. So John is in South, South John is in Brazil. So that's okay. how that happened. Okay, got it. Um, all right, so John Malone said, <laughs> John Malone said, what's happening now is the fight is no longer for entertainment library services. Yeah. That has kind of settled down to where you know one company is making the money. It's Netflix. Yeah. Warner Brothers is making money. Not a lot, but they're making money. And then you have Disney losing a lot of money, Peacock losing a lot of money, Paramount losing a ton of money that they can't afford. Is 2024 going to be the year of consolidation finally? Yeah. 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 So- let, let's 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 go to this market cap chart real quick. So it's haves and have nots already. Paramount's worth eight billion, and they have a ton of debt. So that's actually misleading. The enterprise value, or the or the price that a buyer would really have to pay, is not being accurately represented here. Gross. Warner Brothers Discovery has a twenty five billion dollar market cap with like forty five billion in debt. So like there is no real buyer, uh, I don't think, for something like that. So either, so either these companies are going to have to pay down a ton of debt, boost their cash flow, start buying back shares and running these things like How? profitable. How? It's hard. Well, I like, think, all right, I would bet on Warner Brothers threading that needle. P Paramount, uh, Shari Redstone is already like dropping hints like, oh, I, I would do a deal if the right deal. All right. So that ship has sailed. She owns a linear television network, CBS. Every day that you own a linear television network, it's worth less than the day before. Yeah, it is not making a comeback. It's not cyclical. It's secular. She smashed together CBS, a linear TV network, old school TV network, with a movie studio, Paramount, and then with a bunch of cable channels that haven't been cool since the 90s, like MTV and Nickelodeon. So maybe there's a deal to be done, but nobody wants all of those assets. Like nobody wants that whole that bundle. That's a bad bundle for anyone. So I don't what, know what, what you do. What, what's the most valuable part of that business? I have no idea. The probably the streaming platform, which loses tons of money, but it has a future. CBS has a lot of legacy content. Has no future. Like has no future where it's the same size it I is. I mean, at today. the right at the right price, it's got to be worth something to some. Paramount. Uh, Paramount. The the movie studio has value. There are amazing titles. Like it's not. It's not all bad, but the problem is you're mixing together uh, really played out dying cable brands like MTV with CBS, which like old people's parents watch CBS, honestly. And tons of debt and tons of debt. And tons of uh, Warner Brothers. So it's Batman. It's Looney Tunes. It's great, great, great content library, but then it's also CNN. That's HBO. What do you I know, no, I know. Yeah. Amazing content. No but again, yeah. $45 billion in debt. You have to pay that debt down. How do you do it? You cut costs on content or you start selling really valuable franchises like Harry Potter. 
I don't know what the the right answer is probably like a mix of those things, but that's not going to be easy to do. I'd rather bet on him though than on uh, uh, Zaslav, who runs Warner, than on you know who, you know who buys Paramount, Amazon. But like for what? I don't know. Like let let ten years go by and they'll give it to you. Like what's the in other words, what's the urgency? Unless you think someone else is going to get it. No one else wants it. That's why urgency. there's been These no deal. Seventy percent. There's no urgency. I mean, but my point is, you're going to get that content anyway because it's going to be in an auction. Not now. <laughs> All right. Um, Disney buying Hulu by year end. This is a transaction that everyone knows they have to do. They own a portion of it. They'll buy the rest. Uh, I think that's a, a no brainer at this point. If you're going to spend money on something, better to buy Hulu than to try to spend that money in original content and like creating things that are hit and miss. Dude, they're so not doing that shit anymore. Like they no. were, they, they just that's announced right. $2 billion more of cost cuts. They're not flinging stuff anymore. That's over. Well, let me tell you what else is coming. Your Disney Plus app is going to disappear. So is your Hulu app. A new app that's a unified Disney Plus Hulu is coming. And I don't know what it will be called, but Disney Plus is done. And so is Hulu. These will not be standalone um, uh, apps any longer. Good. It's and too much. It's too many apps. It's too, it's too many. I totally agree. Uh, I don't know what they do with CNN. Uh, the DC Universe, they hired James Gunn, talk who revitalized. Nobody, talk about something that nobody wants, CNN. Yeah. Uh, they they hired James Gunn, who basically created the Guardians of the Galaxy franchise and then revitalized a bunch of DC things for TV. They just hired him and gave him the whole universe. He is there is no DC movie coming out in 2024. The first one will be 25 with the reboot of Superman. He's using all new actors, all have young you people. Seen, have you ever watched a good DC movie? It's James Gunn, though. If I if you if you're a Marvel fan, then you know Guardians were the best thing that they ever did. He's a genius. I think they got the right person. I don't know how Marvel let him go. Um, they're probably throwing a ton of money at him, but that's the that's the future. So can they pay down enough debt to bridge the gap between now and when we're all saying how amazing the new DC movies are in 2025? That's really the that's the bet. That's the bet. Um, they can't sell themselves. I, I was talking to you today about this reverse Morris trust, uh, how they, well, the point is there are restrictions. They actually can't, like if Comcast or Peacock was like, we'll buy it. I don't even think they could do it. So, or at least, like, at least not right now. So what's it's Peacock's a, deal? <laughs> like <laughs> I'm under contract with NBC universal. I literally have no comment. All right. Uh, I should have my own investing show on the Peacock app. That's all I know. All right. The earnings recession is over. Take us hey, home. Hey, 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 I'm the captain now. Take us home. Take us home. Uh, so we were speaking about like this weird dynamic where we, we could be in, we could go into a recession, but the economy, the corporations already prepared for it or already dealt with their own recession. So we had earnings growth or earnings growth was negative for three consecutive quarters year over year. We already did that. Yeah, we did it. We did it. We did it again, though. Q3 earnings are tracking pretty okay. Uh, so how, what do you think about that? The earnings recession is over. Does the earnings recession have to coincide with the economic recession? No. no. It doesn't, no. right? does not. So there's room for people like uh, – we had Malcolm on, the sh on um, Compound and Friends last week. He was great. 
We talked to uh, Cam Cam Harvey two days before that. He was great. These these people have high conviction that recession is inevitable. Could you have one that really doesn't take a huge chunk out of earnings again, given how much cost cutting has already gotten underway? I don't I don't know the answer, but it's an interesting question. I don't, I don't know. I really don't know. It would be weird to have a recession that doesn't hit the S&P unless it already did hit the S&P in the prior year. Right. I don't so, know. I'm not that smart to I, I don't know. But here's what here's what I wanted to bring your attention to. Since the start of earnings season, people are like, oh, it, uh, it's only big tech. It's index fund flows. It's blah, blah, whatever. Since the start of earnings season, big tech has seen positive 2024 EPS revisions while the rest of S&P and wow, tech have look seen at negative this. revisions. Yeah, it's like two different worlds. So, so, And these big tech earnings revisions positive are more important than for any other sector because of how big these stocks are. Like they, these are the ones that matter, quite frankly. Like if you tell if you if you tell me there are positive earnings revisions in Target, it's like, oh, I don't give a shit. What does that you know? What does that mean for the S and P's overall earnings picture? Nothing. These are the ones that matter. I thought this was funny. We could end with this. Uh, Wall Street. This is the journal. Wall Street has slashed its estimates for corporate profits in the final months of 2023, um, but investors are ignoring it. And the reason why is a lot of the falling earnings can be blamed on just two companies, Pfizer and Merck. Analysts cut their projections for fourth quarter earnings at uh, at companies in the S&P by 3.9% in October. That's more than twice the 10-year average of 1.8%, but half of that is as a result of estimate cuts for Pfizer and Merck. So if you exclude those two, the cut to fourth quarter earnings was just in line with the historical average. I thought that was an interesting, because we talk a lot about these exceptions and these sector things where it's like one company is the whole reason why earnings are up or down. Here's another example of that. Those are big companies, but it's a specific story. To that point, would you be shocked if there is a recession in 2024, but earnings growth from NVIDIA and Microsoft keep the index earnings positive? I think that's what happened this year, the first half of this year, to be very honest with you. I think that's what happened. So, I think AI, AI say the stock All right, uh, make the case. What do you I'm got? Gonna, I'm going to make the case for clean energy. I don't know anything about this space, but I'm here's tired of your woke. I'm tired of your woke bullshit. But here's what, <laughs> here's what I do know. <laughs> What I know is the, on the cover of Barron's last this weekend, and not not picking on Barron's, the clean energy crash, and yeah, these stocks have gotten obliterated. Chart on, please, John. For solar, is in a thirty six percent drawdown. The ETF clean energy is in a fifty seven percent drawdown. And phase energy, which I made the case for about a year ago, lol. Whoops, I'm sorry. Is down seventy four percent. Solar Edge is down seventy eight percent. Now. These companies are facing mega headwinds, uh, and the article. What did do they even did, trade on? Do they trade on energy prices or not? It, they're very, they're very sensitive to interest rates. Really? Amongst other, that's it. Yeah, amongst other things. Didn't they just get all these like massive like tax incentives to build shit? What was the Inflation Reduction Act? It had so much know, solar here, stuff in here's there. Here's what I know: when, 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 a, when a sector is down in a sixty percent drawdown. You and you've got attention. And yeah. you've got magazine covers like this. Do you I'm saying do you buy it today? I, I don't know. Will it, pitch. will it be higher no. a year? Will it be yeah, higher yeah. a year later? Yeah, it will be. Find find a stock. 
find or, a stock. Or the, or the ETF. It will be higher yeah. a year later. Oh, no, I, li- I like that. I like that. Very well done. I have a mystery chart for you. John, if you please. Okay. Purple is the stock. Orange is the index. Okay. Um, okay they're not okay, necessarily... Okay. They're not necessarily related, but I'm going to shock you. They're not necessarily related. Is the well, stock it's a- in the index. It's in okay, the index. Okay, okay. But it's not a sector. It's an index. And the purple is a financial company. You know what's interesting? I was going to say is the orange the XLF. It is not. I'll let you take another guess. I'll give you more clues if you'd like. Okay. So is the orange discretionary? It is an index, not a sector. Oh, you keep saying that. Said. My bad. My bad. My bad. My bad. Okay. This is an index that peaked in you January 2000. Ignore, ignore the orange. <laughs> I just told you the purple is a stock and it's a financial. How many financials look like this yeah, right what now? What the hell is going on? Hold on. Give me a second. So there was a massive drawdown. Don't get distracted by the orange. I'm looking at the purple. Can I get a clue or would it be too obvious? I would love to give you a clue. Um, it's a financial, but it's also in many non-financial businesses and investments. Berkshire? Very well. Very well done. Very well done. The Berkshire B- Great job, Michael. The Berkshire B shares. Did you know this is a uh, three-year look and Buffett's uh, Berkshire the old man is- Double the performance of the S&P 500. I thought he lost in, it. He still has three it. years. Look at this. The 99-year-olds are, are, are just crushing ass right now. And uh, no AI, no AI necessary, quite frankly. That's pretty cool, right? Finally, Buffett catches right. a break. Hey, uh, hey, everybody. Thanks so hey, much everybody. for watching. Did hey, you know? Did you know that tomorrow Wait, you know, is you know, Wednesday? Hang on, hang on. Before you do that, with your high voice, I was watching... I was watching uh, Kevin Nealon. There was a special on Netflix where it's like, what are they celebrating? 60 years of the improv, maybe? Okay. And Kevin Nealon does a bit. And he goes, hey, remember that time? Remember that time? And he does this <laughs> yeah. hilarious. Did he see He does this I hilarious. Think, I think time. I've seen him do that before. This hilarious bit of it. doesn't matter the language. He does like a tattoo. Anyway. We're going to have to leave it there. Hey, everyone. Did you know tomorrow is Wednesday, which means all new episode of Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben. Later this week on Thursday afternoon, we'll have an all-new Ask the Compound. Anything Send on Wednesdays your... or anything tomorrow, Josh? Uh, Animal Spirits. Smoke Show. Uh, the Smoke Show. If you're a financial advisor, make sure you register for The Smoke Show. Uh, this is, uh, I think, the pilot episode of something that's going to be highly influential in our industry. Unfortunately, it's advisors only. Uh, you can visit thereformbroker.com and find details. No, not if unfortunately. You, if, we, if you're not an advisor, this is not for you. It's, well, you're unfortunately not being for, for this yeah, singular. Yeah. All right, guys. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you at the end of the week with an all-new Compound and Friends. Well done, Duncan, John, Nicole, new Daniel. team Daniel. Well done, guys. Thanks so much. We will talk to you soon. Whether you're just getting started as an investor or you're managing a multi-million dollar portfolio, Ritholtz Wealth Management has the solution for you. It all starts with building the right financial plan. To speak with a certified financial planner today, visit RitholtzWealth.com. Don't forget to check us out at YouTube.com slash The Compound RWM. Make sure to leave a rating and review on your favorite podcasting app. If you love investing podcasts, Check out Michael and Ben 
every Wednesday morning on Animal Spirits. Thanks for listening. Ritholtz Wealth Management is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Ritholtz Wealth Management and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. Nothing on this podcast should be construed as and may not be used in connection with an offer to sell or solicitation of an offer to buy or hold an interest in any security or investment product. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. No advice may be rendered by Ritholtz Wealth Management unless a client service agreement is in place.